Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, or should I say good day, um, in order to uh, show that I speak the language. Um, the, um, we're delighted to welcome uh, Wayne Swan here this morning. Um, and it is, of course, a very unusual appearance, and I say that uh, for this reason, that in the mid-1990s, the previous Australian Labour government um, invited me to Australia when I was Director General of the Confederation of British Industry as one of their official visitors. Um, and so I was taken around Australia and had to make speeches and met lots of politicians. And as a result of that, uh, for some time afterwards, whether at the CBI or at the Bank of England where I went to then, then at the Financial Services Authority, I was a sort of port of call for uh, visiting Australian politicians, and so um, I got to know John Howard when he was uh, treasurer and Peter Costello um, quite well. And my uh, statistical observation is that 93.6% of all visits to London by senior Australian politicians occur in the week of the Lord's Test Match. Um, and this is no doubt one of those very strange coincidences in life um, that is quite inexplicable. But for a senior Australian politician to be here at some other time uh, than the Lord's Test match tells you one of two things. Either that the state of the world economy and the Australian economy uh, is particularly severely affected, or that the problems of the Australian cricket team are even worse than we suspect. And uh, I'm sure that Wayne Swan will tell us which of these explanations is correct uh, this morning. He has been the Treasurer since the December 2007 in the Rudd government, and of course we had Prime Minister Kevin Rudd here to speak at the school last year. Uh, before then, um, he shadowed the family brief uh, and the Treasury brief, and um, was uh, brought up under the benign paternalist regime of Joe Bjelke-Peterson in Queensland, uh, which is where he has his seat for a constituency called Lily, uh, and we are delighted that he made the long journey of approximately 30 yards from the High Commission over the road um, to here to speak to us uh, this morning. Mr. Swan. Well, thank you very much for that uh, warm welcome. I'm sorry that my timing couldn't be uh, couldn't be better. I mean, I'd love to have uh, been here for a Lord's Test, but um, I think I can uh, say to you that the resilience of the Australian cricket team will be something that will, I think, show through uh, yet again. Uh, it's a bit like our economy. Uh, it's, uh, it's a resilient team, and uh, their success in South Africa has been a, a pleasure to watch in, in recent weeks because I am definitely a, a cricket fan. But I've got my hands full of... Uh, a lot of other things at the moment, and I'm afraid that uh, cricket is not necessarily uh, one of those priorities. But it's certainly a great pleasure to be here today, and certainly a very important time uh, to be here for the G20 Finance Minister's uh, meeting. I'd like to thank the LSE uh, for their invitation uh, to, uh, to speak today. It's an institution, I think, which has uh, fostered some of the world's leading economic uh, thinkers, from people such as uh, John Hicks, James Mead, Robert Mundell, and, of course, there is my personal favourite, uh, which is James Hacker, MP. 
I'm not, I'm not sure many in the room will recognise that name, but people of our age may well uh, be very familiar with it, that, of course, the LSC has had a, a very big influence on policy-making in this country and, I guess, over the years around the world. And, uh, Professor, I think it is the case that, uh, what is it, half of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee has got close links to the LSC, so... I think uh, anyone who's got any dispute with the Monetary Policy Committee can, uh, can basically take that up with the, the LSE. Um, I, um, uh, I think it is important that, uh, that we talk about uh, uh, scholars, scholarship and, uh, and where we're going in terms of economics, both the, the theoretical and practical, because there couldn't be a time where these debates uh, are more important to the lives of, of average people. Now, of course, there are graduates of the LSE working in the finance industry the world over, working to restore the uh, fortunes of tottering banks to revive uh, uh, ailing financial markets. And, of course, they're also, as I said before, working in central banks and finance ministries to stimulate uh, failing economies and to clean up uh, fragile financial systems. They are, in effect, advising world leaders how we are going to uh, get out of this uh, global financial recession. And, of course, economists always have a variety of different views, but at the end of the day, it's only through open and vigorous argument that we're most likely to arrive at the correct response and, to, of course, to head off avoidable future difficulty. Dealing with the global financial crisis is what particularly concerns me uh, on this visit to London, as I said before, we've got a very important meeting of my fellow G20 finance ministers uh, over the weekend. And this is very important to, to consider for a second the G20 and where it stands in global financial architecture. The G20, of course, does include members of the G7, which are the biggest advanced economies. But most importantly, it recognises that there are now other and increasingly important elements in the global economy which are not represented by the G7. It now includes emerging markets, which have been among the most dynamic agents of globalisation in recent years, as well as developing economies. All of the world's regions are now represented. So the G20 is going to play a critical role in delivering a global response to what has become a truly global crisis. And it's going to do that for the first time uh, because we have not had this commitment to a process through the G20 in the past. So we should openly acknowledge the importance of this change when it comes to global financial architecture. And, of course, given the scale of the global challenge, I think the LSE motto, which is, and I quote, to understand the causes of things, is a very good reference point for us today. And I do want to proceed in that spirit by defining the nature of the global problem before I detail the Rudd government's menu of responses and solutions. Now, I don't think I need to stress to you, situated as you are a few underground stops west of the city, of how challenging the circumstances of the global economy uh, are now. Very challenging indeed, and in fact, when you consider that there would be tens of thousands of financial service workers in this city alone who have lost their jobs in recent times to underline just how serious the situation is. This city is one of the epicentres of this financial earthquake. The financial market difficulties that were, of course, magnified by the collapse of Lehman Brothers seven months ago have now intensified and are increasingly being complicated by the resulting slump in cross-border trade, output, employment, investment and confidence. And, of course, there is an insidious feedback loop that has developed 
where declining economic activity has put further stress on financial systems. This places yet more pressure on the balance sheets of financial institutions and yet more strain on the ingenuity, endurance and strength of purpose of central banks and finance ministries as they all seek to arrest the slide. Financial firms worldwide have already recorded more than $1.1 trillion in US dollars in losses and write-downs since this crisis began. And that number will probably go higher, uh, even, uh, even further, in the period ahead. And wealth destruction has proceeded on an undreamt scale. Global stock prices have fallen by around 32, US trillion, 32 trillion US dollars in value as a result of the crisis. That's more than half. The worst result since the days of silent movies. And spreads on US investment grade corporate bonds, a reasonable proxy for broader stresses in global credit markets, have reached the highest levels since 1932. Outright financial distress has brought about the biggest slump in the global economy in living memory. And it's now clear that the public sector, acting in coordinated fashion through forums such as the G20, must provide a break in the circuit. The major advanced economies are officially in recession, including the United States, the United Kingdom, the Euro area and Japan. Growth in the key emerging economies of China and India, the engine room of the global economy over recent years, has slowed dramatically. In East Asia, exports and industrial production have tumbled and some of Australia's nearest neighbours have seen output fall more sharply than it did even during the Asian financial crisis 12 years ago. As a result of these global developments, we've seen forecasts for global growth revised down almost on a weekly basis. And just earlier this week, we had the sobering assessment from the World Bank that the global economy was likely to shrink for the first time since World War II, and world trade could suffer its biggest fall in 80 years. The gravity of this global economic crisis has evoked dramatic policy responses from governments around the world. Governments, including my own, have increased spending aggressively to offset some of the decline in private spending. Governments, including my own, have announced bank funding guarantees to stabilise financial systems. And in some other cases, governments have been forced to provide liquidity, capital and solvency support to major financial institutions, in some instances to the point of full or partial public ownership. Central banks have also taken unprecedented action to support private interbank markets as they seek to maintain credit growth and private spending. And indeed, your own Bank of England has cut official interest rates to the lowest level since the bank was created in 1694 and has announced a bold program to expand the monetary base and to buy public and private debt. The US Federal Reserve has lowered rates effectively to zero and is expanding its balance sheet very aggressively. Without these domestic policy actions, financial and economic conditions would be even worse. There is no question about that. And there is clearly a great deal more to do. The global nature of this crisis also demands broader international cooperation as well as domestic action. This crisis began with rising delinquencies in the US subprime mortgage market, in fact infecting uh, the collateralised debt obligations into which so many subprime assets have been aggregated. The CDOs became untradeable, their values impossible to ascertain. 
18 months later, the problem of these toxic assets is still with us, still weighing on fragile financial institutions which can't sell or even sensibly value the assets and which must, take increase, must make increasing provision against the very real risk of losses. And with the downturn in economic activity, with the predictable impact on jobs, the stock of impaired conventional assets is also raising daily. In these circumstances, the global financial system can't work and the global economy can't work. It's as simple and as stark as that. Impaired assets are constraining the ability of banks to lend. Most of the measures to deal with this toxic debt must, of course, be taken by national governments. But it's also important to develop an international framework so governments are encouraged to deal with the problem consistently and to minimise unintended negative consequences. The financial institutions involved are, after all, mostly operating across many borders, and the problem they pose is global as well as national. There are other aspects, too, in which this crisis has international as well as national dimensions. International financial institutions, such as the World Bank and the IMF, have a crucial role to play in mitigating spillovers to the world's developing economies. The contraction in global trade and capital flows associated with this crisis is having a dramatic impact on many of the emerging economies. The World Bank estimates that developing countries face a financing gap of up to $700 billion, billion in US dollars. And of course the crisis has highlighted the need for urgent and wide-ranging reform of the global financial regulatory system. That is why in our response to this crisis, the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and I have not only been active at home, but have also engaged extensively in the global response. Australia's major banks have not suffered substantial exposures to toxic assets, and they have remained profitable and highly rated. As for public bailouts of failing banks, there have been none in Australia. Our financial system is sound, adequately capitalised and well regulated, and that is as one would expect. But because we live in an integrated world, Australia is suffering from the problems in the financial systems of some of the major economies. That is why we've been very active in seeking international cooperation in addressing the problem of impaired assets in American and European banks, because we will all benefit from that. Now, you may interpret this as enlightened self-interest if you like, and I will return to our international priorities later, but let me first sketch out briefly how Australia has fared during this global crisis. The global crisis has posed immense challenges for us as a trading nation with an open economy. Despite strong fundamentals against the backdrop of the sharpest synchronised global downturn for many years, no economy in the world can hope to escape unscathed. The global recession means that demand for our exports has fallen and commodity prices have fallen sharply. We learned re recently that Australian output contracted in the fourth quarter of last year, as it did in most advanced economies and in much of East Asia, though the downturn in Australia was much less than elsewhere. Thankfully, the Australian situation is much better than most. We've been hit hard, but I think I can say that battered as we have been, we are still upright, still battling, still faring better than almost all other developed economies. We do have many strengths. Our financial system is in good shape. Our financial regulatory framework works well, as you would perhaps expect given our chief prudential regulator earned his doctorate also at the LSE. Our banks are well capitalised and of course they're profitable. 
Indeed, each of Australia's four largest banks are rated AA, putting them among just 11 institutions globally. Australia has not suffered the acute financial stresses that many other countries have experienced. The economy is flexible, adaptable, the result of decades of reform. The central bank has cut the cash rate further and faster and to a lower level than in living memory. Our government's budget position is much stronger than that of comparable countries. Even with the large expected falls in revenues and extra spending in our stimulus packages, we currently estimate the Australian government's net debt will be only a little over 5% of GDP by 2011-12. This compares with an average net government debt of OECD countries of about 45% of GDP. Our strong government balance sheet position gives Australia the flexibility to take up some of the slack from the weak private sector without running up excessive debt and without moving outside of our medium-term fiscal framework. Challenged by this global slump, the Australian Government has acted promptly to offset some of the worst effects of the global financial crisis. We have adopted a comprehensive approach to support our financial system, to support jobs, to support spending, to help get us through. We have announced major stimulus, stimulus packages to help support the economy in these difficult times, including the $10.4 billion economic security strategy and a $42 billion nation-building and jobs plan. As the IMF has suggested, our programs follow the rule of being timely, targeted and temporary. The scope and speed of our fiscal packages has been an Australian success story. Without those packages, I have no doubt whatsoever that demand would be weaker and unemployment would be higher. We judge that the risk of doing too little and doing it too slowly were too high, too high in terms of the jobs lost, of output lost, of life opportunities for younger Australians lost. But we've also laid out a clear plan to return the budget to surplus and therefore reduce debt over time. We have clear exit strategies to, in place for our responses to the crisis, linking short-term policy action with medium-term reform goals. We plan to come out of this crisis with an economy that is stronger, more resilient and more productive than before. The Government has reaffirmed its commitment to achieve budget surpluses on average over the economic cycle. And as the economy recovers and grows above trend, the Government will take action to return the budget to surplus. Another part of the Government's policy response to the global financial crisis is to continue to push ahead with our ambitious reform agenda to ensure that we emerge from this crisis stronger, more resilient and more productive. That is why around 70% of our recent fiscal package is focused on initiatives to build prosperity for the future. It includes investments in our schools and housing and improving regional links to the National Highway Network. We are training Australians in large numbers so that when we spring into recovery, our people can take the maximum benefit. For those people who, through no fault of their own, are unable to gain or retain work during the economic slowdown, the Government is investing in a range of measures to help them improve their skills. We've also moved to support our financial system in the face of the global financial crisis. Our actions have been designed to keep our financial system strong while maintaining credit markets functioning. In October last year, the Rudd Government moved, like other countries, to guarantee bank deposits and wholesale funding. The guarantees have ensured our financial system remains strong 
and able to raise substantial funds in global markets, as the Reserve Bank Governor clearly acknowledged a few weeks ago. Australian banks have been able to raise around half of the current year's funding needs in just two months, and they are on track to issue 10% of global guaranteed issuance, the third biggest issuer of guaranteed bank paper behind France and the United States. I think this goes, <coughs> this goes to the high regard with which both our banks and the government guarantee are held in global markets. Now, of course, the current economic crisis is truly global in its proportions. National government actions to restore demand and stabilise financial institutions are an essential part of restoring growth and prosperity. But because it is a global crisis, it also needs coordinated global action to address the causes and the consequences of this crisis. It is in every G20 nation's interest to influence and be part of that response. Australia wants to advance international responses to the current crisis. Our Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and I were leading proponents of the idea to hold a summit of G20 leaders in Washington DC last year to develop a coordinated global response to the current crisis. The G20 has already delivered through the leader's commitment to and subsequent delivery of coordinated fiscal stimulus. It also set out a clear path for financial sector regulatory reform. Much significant work has been done and is underway, but there is even more that needs to be done. Since the leaders met in Washington in November, we have seen the true extent of the global recession that is unfolding. This just underscores the importance of the meeting of G20 finance ministers this weekend, which in turn paves the way for the leaders' meeting at the beginning of April. As the group representing 85% of the global economy, the London summit must help advance government actions to deal with the current economic crisis. We must maintain progress on the implementation of the action plan set out in the Washington Declaration to undertake fundamental reform of the global financial system. Because if we don't address the root causes of the crisis, we cannot ensure that this does not happen again. In the lead up to the London Leaders' Summit, we've emphasised the need for governments to continue programs for dealing with toxic assets, maintaining the impetus for fiscal stimulus measures and resisting trade and financial protectionism. Now let me just take some time here to outline the importance of each of these priority areas that Australia will be pursuing at this weekend's meeting and to prepare for the leaders' meeting in London. <clears throat> Firstly, that brings me to toxic assets. The first priority <coughs> is addressing the problem of toxic assets that infect global bank balance sheets. This vital issue has been put firmly on the agenda by Prime Minister Kevin Rudd as a challenge that must be embraced if we are to restore confidence and growth in the global economy. Restoring normal credit flows is vital to economic recovery and the success of fiscal stimulus measures announced to date. To this end, we must strive for agreement on an international framework for dealing with toxic or legacy assets. An international framework on toxic asset management would establish clear elements and principles for international cooperation recognising that individual countries may adopt different approaches that reflect different national circumstances. Development of this framework could be assisted by the IMF and international standard-setting bodies, such as the Financial Stability Forum. 
And of course, in addition to dealing with toxic assets, we must have economic stimulus. Economic stimulus is a key priority for these meetings. Last year, the IMF estimated that the world economy required an economic stimulus of at least 2%, at least 2% in 2009. Now, while many countries have undertaken significant action, it's clear that global economic conditions have deteriorated and more is required from countries that have the capacity to take further action. I think the London Summit provides an opportunity for leaders of the G20 member countries to signal, where appropriate, their commitment to further fiscal stimulus. These commitments must be accompanied by matching commitments to restore fiscal balance once growth has been restored. And this, of course, is necessary to maintain confidence in sovereign bond markets. Recent movements in the cost of insuring against sovereign debt default highlight the importance of this principle. And that brings me, of course, to a third priority, which is IMF reform. Australia is co-chair with South Africa of the G20 Working Group on Reform of the IMF. In that role, we want to see a number of outcomes from the London Summit on IMF reform. To begin with, a commitment by G20 members for at least a doubling of the fund's pre-crisis resources. This will primarily have to be through bilateral borrowing from members in the short term. In this regard, we welcome the recent agreement by Japan to lend $100 billion US dollars to the fund. We also want to secure the IMF's resources over the medium to long term. That is why we want to immediately start the process for the expansion of and a significant increase in the new arrangement to borrow, as well as accelerating the next review of quotas to be conducted by January 2011. We are also calling for the early ratification of the Fourth Amendment to the Fund's articles, which will see a once-off allocation of SDRs and will boost the foreign exchange reserves of some of the countries hardest hit by this crisis. And we also need to enhance the IMF's lending instruments. In particular, we want to see the establishment of an effective high access precautionary crisis prevention instrument. We believe a further streamlining in conditionality and an increase in the fund's capacity to assist low-income countries are necessary. We want to accelerate the redistribution of quotas in line with the country's changing weights in the world economy. And, of course, this redistribution, which should enhance the voice and representation of emerging markets and developing economies, should be completed by January 2011. And we want to see faster governments reforms, governance reforms in the institution, including restructuring the executive board and facilitating greater ministerial involvement in the operations of the fund. And finally, we want to see the IMF working closely with the Financial Stability Forum and play a stronger surveillance role in identifying future risks to global financial stability. And finally, what we want to see is resolve around countering protectionism. Trade is the mechanism through which growth and prosperity are transmitted between countries. Every day, billions of dollars of goods and services are brought and sold around the world, giving consumers access to new products and generating wealth and jobs. But the crisis we now face has thrown this process into reverse. World trade flows are falling, forcing businesses to close and threatening the livelihood of millions of the world's poor. Protectionism undermines the efforts to restore capital flows and to stimulate economic growth. That's why we are determined to see robust, a robust commitment against not only trade protectionism, 
but also the financial protectionism at the London summit. So in conclusion, this is a very ambitious agenda. And these are extraordinary times. And of course, extraordinary times demand extraordinary responses. There is little doubt that 2009 will be a tough year for the global economy. Certainly will be a tough year for the Australian economy. Australia is, however, faring better than almost all of our peers in the developed world. And of course, this is, this is in no small part due to the preemptive actions taken by the Rudd government to cushion Australia from the worst effects of this global and economic financial crisis. But we know that we're not immune, certainly not immune from global developments. There's only so much that any one country can do to resist the pull of a global recession. This is a global problem, a global problem requiring global responses. The Australian Government has been playing a key role in finding international solutions to the current crisis because its ramifications are being felt by every Australian. In this interconnected world, we know we're all in this together. Bold, decisive and globally coordinated actions are necessary to stabilise financial markets and put the global economy on the path to recovery. Thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, for that very uh, comprehensive picture of what's going to... I don't know why you need to have the summit now. It's all been uh, set, out, uh, set out here. Um, we have time for a few questions, and um, if you uh, say who you are, I'll take uh, you in the back first, and the microphone will come to you if you can give your name. I've got you as well. Yeah. Thanks. That was excellent, Minister Swan. My name's Jeremy Burke. Uh, I just work with Sandbag Climate Campaign, and one concern with all of this is, uh, particularly at a domestic level, a coherence between the response to the global financial crisis, workplace regulation, and the CPRS particularly looking at some of the policies and how you look at domestic multipliers and what, how you incentivise people to engage locally and also how they use their stimulus locally. So a couple of examples is the current fiscal stimulus uh, is likely to be spent, the, the $900 or, or various amounts, uh, on consumption, which will have no impact on uh, green liabilities and reducing emissions. Secondly, the CPRS will incentivise offshore investment through the use of the clean development mechanism. And then thirdly, a point about voluntary abatement, which is a debate that's been raising, raging lately. If the government's going to promote green stimulus, then how are they going to reduce targets under the CPRS so that uh, polluters do pay? And my very final point, Minister <laughs> Swan, on Sunday... This is definitely your final question. This is it. Sunday afternoon, there's a people's premiere of Age of Stupid, which is a movie that's set in 2050 or 2055, looking back on 2008, and if we knew so much about climate change, why didn't we act? I'm actually speaking at the Shepherd's Bush premiere. So um, that's enough. Thank you. You've asked would, the question. Would you that's like enough. to join Thank me, Minister Swan? Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> very briefly, I'll try and deal with uh, that most comprehensive question. Uh, you might be a candidate for the South African test team, I think. <laughs> In terms of spending and saving, it's very important uh, because uh, the whole point of uh, economic stimulus uh, is to boost demand. And it is the case that uh, the economic stimulus we put in place at the end of last year, which flowed in the last three weeks of December, had a very substantial uh, impact on demand. 
You can see that in the retail sales figures. You can see it also in the quarterly uh, consumption figures in the national accounts. Uh, we stayed positive on consumption. Look what happened around the world. Uh, the fact is that both retail sales tanked around the world uh, in December. They didn't tank in Australia. They were at an eight-year high. That's very important to support employment across the board. Something like uh, 1.5 million Australians work in retail, but it's just not retail. It's the whole supply chain. So we identified that there was going to be a sharp contraction uh, towards the end of last year, it moved quickly, announced in October the first economic stimulus, flowed in the last three weeks of December. All of the evidence indicate, indicates that it boosted demand, and that was very important given what has subsequently occurred with a further contraction in the global economy, which is going to impact on the, on the early quarters of this year as well. And knowing that, we moved again and announced uh, our uh, nation building and jobs plan uh, in February. Uh, and, and consumption elements of that are flowing this week and will flow next week. Why have we got consumption measures via a tax bonus and so on and other support out there? Because it fills the gap, uh, uh, fills the gap in demand until our shovel-ready investment projects has commenced in about the middle of next year. So, sorry, in the middle of this year. So our $42 billion package, almost three-quarters of that is direct investment, which will flow from the middle of the year. So the consumption measures that are part of the second package are flowing now in March and flowing through in April. They will again boost demand at a critical time. That demand globally has been contracting very sharply. So I don't think there's any debate, uh, really, legitimate debate, that uh, the measures we've put in place for both direct investment and for consumption to boost demand are working and will continue to work in the middle of what is turning out to be a much sharper contraction uh, in the global economy that, than anybody could have anticipated. Secondly, in terms of the CPRS, uh, the measures that we are taking I think are very important and they are measures which will, which will position our country for the long term. Uh, the, the big problem here is failure to act. If we don't put in place a, uh, a set of measures to put a price on carbon over time, uh, then the country will, will pay for that and pay a lot more down the track. And that's what, our, that's what our modelling through Treasury shows. Now, some people get stuck into us because they say that uh, the targets are too low or they criticise us for a slow start. We make no apology for putting in place a slow start, which does in part recognise the circumstances we're in. But business de demands certainty when it comes to this approach. Very important that we put our alternative out there through the draft legislation, have it debated in the parliament, but I'm absolutely confident that Australia is, a, is ahead of the game by putting in place uh, a price signal through the CPRS which will well position our country to get a very big share of the green jobs of the future. But we don't apologise for the fact that there's a slow start. Uh, and uh, we're going we're to move uh, forward with this. Uh, it will go to the parliament, it will be debated and, and of course its fate will be, uh, will be seen in, in the Senate. And who knows what the outcome of that will be. But I know one thing. Many people out there who may have some reservations about this scheme, say in the business community, for example, uh, want certainty. And that certainty is more important than ever in terms of the CPRS, given the economic outlook uh, that we are in. In terms of voluntary abatement, I just reject the premise of uh, the point that you made. Uh, we are doing a lot in terms of energy, energy efficiency to encourage uh, uh, people to make a personal contribution. And that, that, at the end of the day, does count. Uh, and we've just put in place probably the single biggest national energy efficiency measure, given the size of our country, that, uh, that, 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 that anybody could point to anywhere in the world. 
putting insulation into all those Australian homes that aren't insulated is a huge step forward in terms of uh, uh, increasing um, our energy efficiency. And it's the equivalent, I think, of taking um, something like a million cars uh, off the road over a 10 or 20 year period. It's a very substantial uh, addition to the price signal that will be sent through our CPRS. So we're acting when it comes to reducing carbon pollution at, at every level. An overarching CPRS and, uh, and fundamental measures to increase energy efficiency. Thank you. One uh, over here, front row. Yeah. <coughs> uh, Linda Korsha, currently at LSE. Um, that sounds great for the, uh, <coughs> for the toxic assets of banks. I'm glad that you, uh, I'm, I'm an Australian citizen and Australian taxpayer. I'm glad that you said we're all in this together because um, I've lost all my money for the rest of my life in the failed Queensland uh, Unit Trust MFS. That's your state. That was from January 08. And it was as a result of the failure of the oversight authority ASIC. Um, you take government, you take responsibility, and I'd like to know what you're going to do about that. A forward-looking Senate inquiry looking at future regulation is no good to people like me. I'm asking on behalf of 10,000 people, what are you going to do about it? Well, I think the um, uh, people that invested in, in those schemes are, are right to be uh, disillusioned and, and angry with uh, what has happened to their money. Uh, they, uh, they made an investment in a market-linked in, in investment uh, proposal uh, which didn't uh, have the... Uh, the uh, security that a, an investment in a APRA-regulated uh, institution would have because they were looking for higher returns. And sadly, uh, the worst has happened. Naturally, I think there will be implications that need to be studied for um, what this means in terms of organisations such as ASIC, and the government uh, is, uh, is very acutely aware of that. And we have uh, recently, as you've indicated, announced an inquiry principally into the events surrounding storm, but I think it goes to the core of your question. How could the regulatory system uh, allow or tolerate uh, these sorts of activities by a number of people in uh, market-linked investment schemes? And I don't pretend to have the answer to that. That's what the inquiries will show us. Uh, but there, there is nothing the Australian government can do uh, for those people who unfortunately lost their money in those market-linked schemes uh, other than to try and learn the lessons of that experience and fix the regulatory system. There was one over here, the, yes, third, third row there. Chap with about as much hair as me. There, Doug Andrew, uh, just wonder, uh, given the success of the Australian banks through this recent crisis, what are the lessons from Australia that the UK could take on board in thinking about bank governance, regulatory policy and macro policy? Well, I think it's pretty fair to say that um, our system has stood up pretty well uh, given uh, events that have occurred uh, around the world over the last 12 months. And I do pay uh, a tribute to the, the work of our principal regulators uh, here, uh, particularly the Reserve Bank of Australia uh, and also APRA. And it's pretty clear to me that, uh, that APRA was pretty assiduous uh, in recent years in keeping a very close eye on what was actually going on directly in the banking system. Now, other people may assert that um, other regulators elsewhere were not as uh, assiduous or not. I don't intend to comment, uh, comment on what other regulators may have done, but it's pretty clear that in Australia that uh, the work done by APRA and the Reserve Bank together in that vital area was obviously very, very effective. 
And uh, one of the measures of that, or the outcomes that indicate that, Australia does not have, does not have a subprime loan problem. Um, loans of that nature would be something like less than 2% in Australia of, uh, of all mortgages. Um, and our banks didn't, by and large, get involved in investing in a significant way in many, many of these toxic assets which are now uh, pulling down uh, the banking system elsewhere in the world. I'd like to think that maybe our regulators played some role uh, in that. And, and it may be there's a whole lot of other factors, but certainly the good work of uh, the RBA and, and APRA certainly has meant that our banking system has emerged in much better shape than just about any other country in the world, and that's a very significant strength for Australia in this environment. And if others want to look at what actually occurred in Australia and compare it to what actually happened in, in, in their country, uh, they may well learn some lessons from that. Should we take, uh, Judge, should we take one more? Is that, is that sure. Okay? Yeah. Chap here, second one. Hi, um, my name is Justin Clark. I'm just a, a concerned Australian. Um, you talk about the uh, property market uh, previously. Isn't the elephant in the room for Australia the property bubble? In the context of a worldwide collapse in housing prices, doesn't the federal and state policy of giving up to $40,000 for the first homeowners grant merely inflate the bubble? And doesn't it support us in the short term but set us up for a greater fall? Not at all. I think, <clears throat> I think that analysis is, enti is entirely incorrect. Uh, we don't have in our, in our housing market a property bubble. We actually have a uh, shortage of supply uh, in the Australian housing market. Uh, prices peaked uh, some years ago in Australia uh, and, uh, and we don't have, as I said before, uh, any, uh, any significant exposure to what you'd call subprime loans. So the combination of, I think, generally good lending practices uh, by our banks... Uh, a combination of the fact that we have strong population growth and a shortage of housing uh, basically means there's a, a stability in the Australian housing market that is not there in many other housing markets. Uh, and the fact that, uh, that um, the, the, there have been cuts in the official cash rate of something like 400 basis points, 375 which have been passed on, also means that many people out there who were feeling a bit burdened by their level of debt, have certainly had a major increase uh, in their disposable income, uh, and that's a good thing. So I don't accept the premise that our housing market is remotely like uh, any, many other countries where you assert there may be a bubble. In fact, quite the contrary. And I think that is, that is a very significant strength of the Australian economy at this time. Thank you very much. We're on a fairly tight uh, timetable, so I think we're going to have to uh, call it uh, call a halt at this point. Thank you so much for coming and informing us, and um, particularly what you had to say about IMF reform, I'm sure will be very influential in the G20. Thank you so much. Thank you.